This is Finding Center, a daily half hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is loving God and others. Joseph B. Worthlin, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when this address was given, will share his BYU fireside remarks entitled, The Two Guiding Lights. Like many others, I have followed with interest the landing of an unmanned craft on the planet Mars. What a remarkable feat. Since the early 1960s, 35 missions have been launched from Earth to the Red Planet. Of these, less than one-third have been considered successful. Mars, on average, is roughly 50 million miles away. Can you imagine the challenge of the launching of a rocket from Earth to the planet that is traveling faster than 66,000 miles per hour itself? crossing millions of miles of space, and then arriving at another planet that is hurling through space at its own speed of 54,000 miles per hour. But getting the rovers to the planet is not only part of the challenge. Landing them safely was another. Scientists knew the landers would make its descent through the Martian atmosphere at a rate of 12,000 miles per hour. Even after deploying their parachutes, the rovers would be going too fast to land safely. So the scientists designed a cocoon of glorified airbags that would surround the rovers, cushioning it during impact. The landing worked beautifully, and the rovers are now exploring the surface of the red planet, collecting a harvest of images and data that will be studied by students and scientists for years to come. During my lifetime, there have been a number of great voyages, that will ever be etched upon the pages of history. When I was a young boy, Charles A. Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic Ocean in his spirit of St. Louis. When he took off, many throughout the world held their breath, wondering if he would survive. He was a hero of mine, and I remember how we celebrated when news broke that he had landed in Paris. Another great voyage that took place in the summer of 1969, Neil Armstrong stepped away from the Apollo 11 lunar Modulo, with the words, That's one step for man, one giant leap for mankind. He set forth upon the moon. In the last century, mankind has taken many great journeys. We have mapped the human genome, made amazing advances in medicine, reached into the heavens and pulled back answers to riddles that have puzzled mankind for centuries. We're ever on the threshold of new journeys and new discoveries. Can you imagine the excitement of the Wright brothers on the morning of that first flight? The anticipation of Jonas Salk as he analyzed the data that demonstrated a way to prevent polio. Today I look at the youth of our Church and see nearly limitless anticipation. You stand at the very threshold of life. Who is to say what your lives will hold? What discoveries will you make? What remarkable events will you witness? may offer two words of counsel, two beacons of light that will provide direction to you during your journey. During the time of the Savior's ministry, the lawyers and students of Scripture often tried to catch him in a snare. They asked him questions, hoping that he would say something they could use against him. Of course, for them, this was an exercise in continual disappointment. The Scriptures tell us that after Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, 
the Pharisees decided to try their hand with a question they were sure it would be impossible for him to answer. Master, they asked, which is the great commandment in the law? The reason they thought this was such a difficult question was that they themselves had invested an enormous amount of time trying to answer the questions themselves. In fact, they had determined that there were more than 600 commandments, 365 of them negative, 248 positive. That must have been quite a list. No wonder it was so hard to keep all the rules straight. In fact, the list was so cumbersome that the Pharisees had worked hard to identify which of the 600 commandments were heavy or most important, and those which were light, meaning of lesser importance. At any rate, it must have been a topic of considerable debate. And if the question was such a difficult one for the scholars, then certainly it would be impossible for this young from Galilee. Of course, in that hope, the Pharisees were once again disappointed, for the Messiah turned and answered their question directly, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. He said, This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In a few short sentences, the Savior silenced the Pharisees and provided mankind with two great guiding commandments, commandments that belong at the center of and provide the foundation for all we think, feel, and do. Love the Lord and love your fellow man. These two guiding lights I wish to impress upon your hearts this day. These lights will shine ever in the darkness and provide guidance during the storms of life. Why does the Lord command us to love Him? He is all-powerful and all-knowing. Why, then, is the first commandment to love Him? Is He incomplete if we do not worship Him? Is He any less if we fail to acknowledge Him? Of course not. Then why is the first and great commandment to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind? The answer to this question has little to do with how our love benefits God and everything to do with how that love benefits us. When we love our Heavenly Father with all our heart, mind, mind, and strength, we follow Him joyfully. When we love our Heavenly Father, we leave behind the grudging have-to and embrace the enthusiastic can't-wait-to attitude. In thanksgiving, we joyfully walk the path of Lord, the path of discipleship that leads to Him. Why must we love the Lord? Because as we do so, we become refined, pure, and holy. When we love the Lord, the benefits of the Atonement can wash away our earthly stain, and through our sins, be as scarlet, we can become new creatures, filled with new life, new thoughts, and a desire to do good continually. When we love the Lord, we hunger and thirst for knowledge of Him. When we love the Lord, we cherish the scriptures. We hold the truths therein precious as gems of great worth. It is easy to say we love the Lord, but true devotion means more than mouthing syllables. If you love me, keep my commandments, the Savior taught. And so he urges us today, as members of the Church, keep the commandments. They will feel 
the influence and the guidance of the Spirit in their lives, gradually through a process of spiritual refinement, they will become sanctified and filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. Their prayers will become effectual, their faith more certain. Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. The Lord has spoken in these latter days. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. The first light, then, that I would urge you to carry with you during your journey through life is love of the Lord. The second light I urge you to take with you is love for your fellow man. Loving our neighbor is not just a good idea. It is the core of what has distinguished the followers of Christ in every age since the beginning of time. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, the Savior taught, if ye have love one for another. Look at every Zion society from ancient times to present, and you'll find at its center love for others. The great Book of Mormon prophet King Benjamin counseled that caring for others is linked to the power of the Atonement. For the sake of retaining remission of your sins from day to day, that ye may walk guiltless before God, he taught his people, I would that ye should impart of your substance to the poor, every man according to that which he hath, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and ministering to their relief, both spiritually and temporally, according to their wants. Close quote. The scriptures caution us that even our power of prayer is dependent upon our compassion for others. For if ye turn away the needy and the naked, and visit not the sick and afflicted, and in part of your substance, if ye have to those who stand in need, behold, your prayer is in vain, and availeth you nothing. Disciples of the living Christ have always known that as we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. The irony of this is that, although we may make a difference in the lives of those we help, often the person who benefits most from charitable service is the person who gives. When we sacrifice our time, talents, and resources for the sake of others, we refine our character and thereby become more fit for the kingdom. The Savior said, The poor will always be with us, and it is a good thing, too, because we cannot become exalted without them. We need the poor as much as the poor need us, as we open our hearts to those in need, whether they be poor or discouraged or grieving or in distress, and as we give of ourselves to lift their burdens, our problems seem a little smaller. We grow in spirit, we grow in peace. We grow in joy as we lift up the hands which hang down. The light within us grows a little brighter and illuminates the way before us. The Prophet Joseph Smith taught that a member of the Church is to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to provide for the widow, to dry up the tear of the orphan, to comfort the afflicted, whether in this Church or in any other, or in no, other, in no Church at all, wherever he finds them. In our day, President Gordon B. Hinckley has said, Where there is stark hunger, regardless of the cause, I will not let political considerations dull my sense of mercy or thwart my responsibility to the sons and daughters of God, whatever they may be or whatever their circumstances. Close quote. We may manifest our love for others by our kindness. Like the people in Alma's day, 
We too are desirous to bear one another's burdens, that they may be light, mourn with those that mourn, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. We manifest our uh, love for others by standing as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places. The great missionary work of the Church is a testimony to our love of our fellow man. The gospel of Jesus Christ restored to the earth in these latter days is the great hope for individuals, families, communities, and for the world itself. We say to our friends, Come unto Christ, enter the purifying waters of baptism, receive the Holy Ghost, and your lives will be transformed in the light and life of the Spirit. Because of love of our fellow man, we enter holy temples to perform vicarious ordinances for those who have departed from this mortality without the blessings of the everlasting gospel. This act of compassion is selfless. It is an act of love for those who wait upon us praying continually for our assistance. Love is the great commandment. Love your enemies, the Savior proclaimed. Do good to them which hate you. Imagine for a moment how our lives would be transformed if everyone in the world had as a central motivation love and compassion for all of God's children. What do you suppose their families, wards, communities, and nations would be like if our central focus was less upon themselves and more on what they could do to serve others? We live in an age of industry. Our lives are filled to capacity with lists of tasks we need to accomplish. If you are like many, you place on the list things such as prayer, reading the scriptures, visiting the sick, and helping those in need. These two lights we have spoken, loving the Lord and loving our neighbor, are not merely things we should include on our list. They are the very essence of the list. For upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. How much more meaningful would our lives be if our thoughts, hearts, and actions were guided by these two great lights. In 1885, the great Russian writer Leo Tolstoy wrote a story about an old cobbler by the name of Martin who lived in a humble shop in a small village. He did quality work, didn't charge too much, and was reliable and honest. Like many of us, Martin had experienced his share of sorrow. He had buried not only his wife but his own son as well. In his grief, Martin prayed again and again that he too might die. Gradually, his despair gave way to anger, and Martin, in his bitterness, lost his faith and would have nothing to do with God. One day, a holy man who had spent eight years in prayer and meditation came by to see him. Martin opened his heart and told the man that he no longer wished to live, since he was quite without hope in the world. You have no right to say such things, Martin, the other said. We cannot judge God's ways. If God wills that your son die and you live, it must be best so. As to your despair, that comes because you wish to live for your own happiness. What else should one live for? asked Martin. For God, Martin, the old man said. He gives you life and you must live for him. When you have learned to live for him, you will grieve no more, and all will seem easy to you. Martin was silent for a while and then asked, But how is one to live for God? The old man answered, 
Can you read? Then buy the Gospels and read them. There you'll see how God would have you live. These words sank deep in Martin's heart, and that same day he opened the New Testament and began to read. At first he meant only to read on holidays, but having once begun, he found it made his heart so light that he read every day. Sometimes he was so absorbed in his reading that the oil in his lamp burned out before he could tear himself away from the book. The more he read, the more he felt his love for the Lord growing stronger. His heart grew lighter as well. From that time forward, Martin's whole life changed. He drank and gossiped less. When he was tempted to say unkind words, he refrained. His life became peaceful and joyful. One night, as he was reading his Bible, he drifted to sleep. Suddenly, he heard a voice. Martin, it said, who's there, he asked. Martin, the voice said, look out onto the street tomorrow, for I shall come. The cobbler rose from his chair and rubbed his eyes, but did not know whether he had heard these words in a dream or awake. The next morning, as he was working, he thought about what had happened the night before. At times it seemed as though it must have been a dream, and at times he thought he had really heard the voice. Could it be that his beloved Savior would visit him in his humble shop? While he worked, he looked out onto the street at everyone who passed by to see if he recognized their face. After a while, an old soldier with worn and shabby boots came near the window. Martin knew the man. He had no money and stayed with a neighbor who, had, out of charity, had offered him a room in exchange for help around the house. It was cold outside, and it started to snow, and the old soldier was trying to get warm by the leaning against Martin's building. Martin put some tea on the, on the stove and invited the man into his shop. Don't trouble to wipe your feet, Martin said. I'll wipe up the floor. It's all in a day's work. The old man sat down and emptied his glass. Martin offered him another while, continuing to look out the window onto the street. Are you expecting someone? the visitor asked. Well, now, Martin said, I'm ashamed to tell you. It isn't that I really expect anyone, but I heard something last night which I can't get out of my mind. And he told the old man about the voice he had heard. The old soldier listened intently, and after drinking a third glass of tea, he thanked Martin for giving him food and comfort both for the soul as well as for the body, and told him, he hoped he wouldn't be disappointed and that his visitor would appear. Later in the day, Martin noticed a woman who he had never seen before. She was poorly dressed, wearing only summer clothes that were shabby and worn. On her feet, she wore peasant-made shoes, and she had a baby in her arms. Through the window, Martin could see the woman was shivering. He could hear the baby crying and the woman trying to soothe it. Martin went out and insisted that she enter his shop. Sit down near the stove, he told her. Warm yourself and feed the baby. She told him that she had no milk to feed the baby and that she hadn't eaten herself since early morning. Martin made some soup and offered the woman some bread. While the woman ate, Martin held the baby. As they talked, Martin learned that she had been working as a cook until her baby was born but that her employer wouldn't keep her on with a newborn child. She had no money for food, 
and had pawned her last shawl for a few coins the day before. She explained that a woman in another village had offered her a position and that she was on her way towards that village when Martin invited her in. Martin smiled and gave the woman a cloak to wrap her baby in. He then handed her some coins and told her to get her shawl out of pawn. After she left, Martin went back to work, always looking outside the window, hoping against hope to see the face of the one he loved with all his heart, his Savior. Time passed, and after a while Martin saw an apple vendor stop just in front of his window. She was attempting to shift an old sack from one shoulder to the other when a boy in a tattered cap ran up, snatched an apple, and tried to slip away. But the woman was too quick, and she caught the boy and held on to him with both hands. She knocked the cap off his head and seized hold of his hair. The woman scolded, and the boy screamed. Martin rushed out of the door as he heard the woman threatening to take the boy to the police. He separated the boy from the woman and begged the woman to forgive him. Although the woman did not want to let him go, something in Martin's words touched her, and she let him go. As she did so, the young boy saw his opportunity and tried to run away, but he did not get far. Martin seized him, held him fast, and insisted he ask the woman for forgiveness. The boy, realizing he had nowhere to run, cried and pleaded for the woman to forgive him. Seeing that the boy was truly penitent, Martin paid the woman for then an apple and gave it to the boy, telling him not to steal again. By the time Martin returned to his little shop, he noticed the lamplighter passing on his way to light the street lamps. Evening had come. The Savior had not appeared. Finally, Martin put away his tools and pulled down his beloved Bible from the shelf. He meant to open, open it at the place he had marked the day before, but the book opened to another place. As Martin opened it, his experience of the night before came back into his mind, and no sooner had he thought of it than he seemed to hear footsteps as though someone were moving behind him. And a voice whispered in his ear, Martin, Martin, don't you know me? Who is it? muttered Martin. It is I, said the voice, and out of the dark corner stepped the old soldier, who smiled and then vanished like a cloud. It is I, said the voice again, and out of the darkness stepped the woman with the baby in her arms, and the woman smiled and the baby smiled, and they too vanished. It is I, said the voice once more, and the old woman and the boy with the apple stepped out and both smiled, and then they too vanished. And Martin's soul grew glad. He put on his spectacles and began reading the gospel just where it had opened. And at the top of the page he read, I was a hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. And at the bottom of the page he read, Inasmuch as ye had done it unto one of these, the least of my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And Martin understood that his dream had come true and that the Savior had really come to him that day and he had welcomed him. My dear brothers and sisters, you stand at the threshold of an amazing and wonderful journey. As one who has gone before you, I offer these two words of counsel, two sources of light that will provide light for you throughout your life's journey. 
Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the essence of who we are as disciples of Jesus Christ. As a special witness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I testify with all my heart that the gospel of Jesus Christ is restored to earth again. I testify that a young boy retired to a grove of trees and sought the answers to the questions of his heart. God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph Smith, and so began the great work of restoration that unveiled the gospel in all its fullness. Jesus the Christ lives. He loved us so much that he paid the ultimate price to save us from our sins. Jesus the Christ lives today. He is not aloof nor disinterested in our lives. He has told us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. The heavens are not closed. The master of ocean, earth, and sky speaks to prophets and apostles today. All who approach him with humility and real intent, seeking to know of him, surely shall find him. It is my testimony to you today that as we make our lives living monuments that testify of our love for God and for our fellow man, we walk in the path that leads to eternal life. That we may do so is my humble prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for a half hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Loving God and Others. Joseph B. Worthland gave his talk entitled The Two Guiding Lights. Speeches on Finding Center are often edited for broadcast. Find links to the full talks and access the rest of our Finding Center episodes on the free BYU Radio app, available wherever you get your apps. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.